The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer. We are closing in on the end of our fifth year, and we sincerely hope that we have offered as many of you as we possibly can a message of hope and help that those are available for you. Today's episode is episode number 258. And just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And also give us a good review because then Google will find us when people search for podcasts about addiction. And also find us on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel if you like to watch as well as listen. And give us a thumbs up there. And be sure and ring the bell when you subscribe because that way you'll find out when we have a new episode going up. So today we have an interview with a gentleman who is a former U.S. Air Force helicopter pilot. His name is Robert Scoggins. He grew up in small town Georgia, and he then was a second lieutenant when he went into the United States Air Force. He attended the Marion Military Institute. He went on to, after joining the Air Force, he went on to flight training, and he became a uh, a uh, medevac pilot for helicopters. He loved helicopters and wanted to fly helicopters. So he was flying, you know, the medical personnel into oftentimes battle that was happening when he flew in. And he, um, he flew over 1,500 flight hours as a UH-1N instructor pilot and an HH-60G pilot. He was diagnosed with PTSD, which unfortunately many of our military who go off to war, that happens. And he, but then he also had a traumatic, traumatic brain injury. Both of these resulted in him becoming addicted. He um, later on found rock to recovery. And that's kind of how we found Robert. So without further ado, let's talk to Robert Scoggins. So Robert Scoggins, first of all, thank you for your service. I know I said it off camera, but I want to say it on camera because I, having grown up in the military, I just appreciate you and everyone like you that put in their years. Oh, thanks so much. Absolutely. And also thank you for being willing to share your story today. And um, we know that when individuals who have had an addiction problem, no matter what it stemmed from, that when they tell their story, that somebody listening, you know, maybe go, reaches for help. It resonates with someone, and that's the whole purpose. And um, yeah, so thank you for being willing. Well, thank you for having me on. This is an incredible honor. And um, yeah, this is very exciting actually i'm a big fan of your podcast and uh yeah it's, it's a tremendous joy to be here awesome thank you so much so tell me where did you grow up what was your life like and and you know the whole background of you getting into the military and from there absolutely well um i wasn't a typical military brat but uh my father was in 32 years as we talked about off camera um but he he was mostly in um, the air guard when I was younger. And um, so I didn't have to move around, uh, but I was exposed to the military um, life. And uh, especially during the first Gulf war, um, you know, my dad left our elementary school, had us all together and, you know, did some mental health uh, back then, which didn't mean much, obviously in fifth grade, but um, 
my uh, my grandfathers, both of them actually served uh, in World War II. My maternal grandfather's a flying tiger over China. And, um, he did 75 combat missions, which was the maximum number at that time. Wow. Um, because it was a different environment. And um, frankly, they were losing a lot of pilots. And uh, But it was also a mental health um, sort of uh, cap on people. And uh, it's interesting um, compared to today, uh, you know, in half the time I did in Afghanistan over 250 missions, um, something we don't do today. Uh, wow. But my my paternal grandfather um, was an infantryman pulled out of uh, pulled out of Clemson during the middle of um, right when World War II was kicking off, and um, so he did uh, infantry in Europe. Uh, landed a few days after D Day, and um, you know, military service has sort of just been in my blood and um, been been a passion of mine. Um, but yeah, I, did, I didn't really have much experience with alcohol, drugs, or anything as a kid. Um, it's mostly uh, you know. Um, really into anything that got me going on adrenaline and such. I love being outside, love playing sports. And that was, you know, sort of my passion. That's awesome. So what got you into the military? What was, what was the passion there? Uh, oh boy. Um, you know, I was, I think I was a junior. My dad walked in one day and he uh, said, all right, time, time to choose. What do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I don't know. I, I guess I'll fly. I just picked something out of a hat. You know, it sounded cool at the time. And like I said, he was he was in the uh, Air Force and Air Guard for for a long time. So he walks in a couple of weeks later, throws down a pack, you know, papers about this big. I mean, look to me about this big as a kid, you know, just boom. I, in my mind, the, the table collapsed and the weight of all the paperwork. But um, yeah, it's, you know, maybe interesting. But um, so I filled that out and it was a uh, it was an application to Air Force Academy. And uh, so I filled that out and I was promptly rejected. But I was I was put into uh, so the military is a little bit weird. They have a a category is the um, top 100 rejects. And I, I don't think it was labeled that. Um, but to me, that's what it was. So I, I was, uh, I was blessed with an extra opportunity to uh, succeed. They, they said, how about this? How about we send you to an army school? You're going to go there and live and, you know, train with the army and they're going to educate you. And uh, well, best the army can educate you. <laughs> Got to throw in my digs being Air Force. Um, but no, I, I, I did. Um, I was offered a year school in Alabama for a two year commissioning program. And uh, being young and dumb and, you know, full of vinegar and piss, I said, yes, absolutely. Let's do this. And um, so I signed up knowing I'd have to redo my freshman year and um, loved every well, not every bit, a lot of it. Loved my friends, loved, loved the fun, loved living in the barracks with everybody. Not a big fan of PT at 5 a.m. every day, but whatever. Um, it was worth it. And I got into the Air Force Academy. And um, a short uh, four years later, I graduated. And uh, all I wanted to do was work with my buddies in the Army. So I left two choices for a pilot. That was close air support or helicopters. And um, so, you know, before before I knew it, I made my way into combat rescue. And um, that's, that's where my heart was. And I, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Wow. Not, again, not the five o'clock shows. <laughs> was pretty and good. you and you flew how many missions did you say? Oh gosh. Um, so combat missions, I did uh, two hundred and fifty-one. Um, overall, I did a little over fifteen hundred flight hours and uh, about a twelve and a half year career flying. Wow. And um, did uh, tours to Iraq, uh, Blad Air Base. Um, went to Afghanistan and did. Kandahar Airfield and Camp Bastion, and then um, did a staff tour in the Horn of Africa. 
So, so you're flying into the thick of it. You're, you're yes, like yes. in the thick of battle. Yes. So our, our job was to sit alert and basically hang out and, uh, and wait for something to go wrong, which um, in Iraq, I can't talk too much about. We were direct tasked to um, some classified units, but essentially they were the door kickers and we would be there. Um, casualty evacuation. My career field with Air Force, it's a, a congressionally mandated um, career, which is it's a little unique in that um, in that it's uh, it's designed for anybody who's isolated or captured or shot down, and, and that's what we were we were uh, reserved for. But we found a, a unique niche in in today's warfare, um, being able to go in, carry weapons, and engage um, and and neutralize and suppress threats in a different way than most medevacs can, because by Geneva Convention rules, they're not allowed to carry um, any, uh, any attack weaponry and, um, a lot of that. So we carried a small team, um, trained to special ops levels, uh, in layman's terms. And, uh, we would always go around in two ships and each aircraft would, would have, uh, essentially two door guns, um, whether it was a 50 caliber cannon pretty much, or, um, the, uh, the mini gun, um, and then a team of, uh, of five operators that, that would uh, take care of patients or um, do whatever the situation called for. I got it. Now, did you start, um, I know I, I read your chapter in the Rock to Recovery book. Okay. Did you start alcohol while you were in the military? Did that become like a way to deal with the stress? Oh boy. Um, well, the military has a unique relationship with alcohol. And, uh, we, we tend to have, uh, squadron bars even. And, um, so it's not, not to, uh, you know, suggest anything, but there was always an opportunity to celebrate and, yeah. um, and especially after hard, after hard flights, that's, it was nice. But, uh, for me personally, I, I sort of translated that into being the reason to have fun for the alcohol. So it's it slowly, um, slowly devolved into excessive use. Um, and one of the other unique things with deployments, especially as you sort of, at least I did again, I don't want to say everybody, uh, sort of lie to yourself and convince yourself that you don't, you're not developing any problems with, with binge drinking or with, uh, focusing on drinking because you deploy, you don't have a drop and then, you know, you're good to go and you can come back and essentially feel like you can turn it on and off at any time. And that's, for me, that was not the case. Right. It's, uh, it's just an illusion. Right. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I, I found um, when, I, when I got home from, from Afghanistan, I couldn't control it. And um, I, I started a unique lifestyle that was a little bit, again, more of an illusion where I would bounce around from one minor addiction to another, if, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I, I slowly uh, became addicted to porn, to sex. Um, to over-the-counter medications, um, sleeping aids, uh, developed into muscle relaxers, Xanax, and that sort of thing. I sort of call it the uh, suburban junkie starter kit, you know, mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, and even healthy things, exercise, um, you know, and uh, unhealthy things like adrenaline come out too. Um, got into motorcycles and uh, the motorcycle club lifestyle. Um, and so again, it was by, by bouncing between different things, I was able to lie to myself, but I was always on something. 
right. if, if that makes sense. Well, yes, it does. Were you still being deployed? Were you, I, I'm not on exactly, in, like, do you work when you come back? Or are you pretty much off and you oh, just wait okay. until you're deployed? Yeah. So, so the schedule for each career field is different. And okay. now I don't really know what they're doing. I, I, I was uh, medically retired in 2015. Um, but what they used to have was a rotation cycle set up. And for our career field, we would replace ourselves. So we were actually on a one-to-one -one cycle. So it would generally be three months on, three months off. Okay. Um, and then occasionally they would change that up based on needs. And sometimes they'd say, okay, you're, now you're staying for an extra month or extra two months, or you know, we're bringing you back early so we can send you somewhere else in a few months. Okay. And it really just depended. But what they tried for was every month that you were gone, they tried to give you an equal amount at home. I got but it. That whole time at home, you'd get you get um, basically ten days off work after deployment, and then it was immediately back into upgrades into uh, getting your um, flight currencies back up. There's a lot of things you can't do overseas, and a lot of requirements you have to do at home. I got it. So you um, had like yeah. continuing education the whole time you're at home. Absolutely, yeah. You got Absolutely. So how long totally were you in the military, Robert? I was in active duty 12 and a half years, but again, five years of, of the military school. Okay. Um, so when I got home from Afghanistan, I was actually, um, I'd, I'd been to Iraq previously, uh, came home for 92 days, went to Afghanistan, um, was there just under half a year, um, came back and um, had pretty big problems right, right away. Uh, but at that point, I was only in about um, seven and a half to eight years. And, um, so I didn't really do much as far as, you know, um, going to seek help right away, uh, self-medicated as you probably could have guessed from my, uh, litany of, of things that I slowly, um, got involved with to keep, keep my emotions under check and, and to be able to keep, um, keep doing my job. Um, but at the same time, a lot, it was, all my issues were manifesting in my private life. Right. Um, so I, I couldn't look at my kids, um, even a little bit. Um, you know, my, my youngest, uh, I got home and I would, I would smell my patients yep. when, I, when I looked at them. And I never heard of that. And um, I, I just, I, I thought so little of myself. I couldn't, I couldn't look at my, at my older daughter. Um, and I couldn't be around my wife at the time I projected onto her and I, I got away from that situation within a couple of months. PTSD. Yes. Yes. You know, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how anyone can go through that and come back and not be affected like drastically. I just, I, I don't believe, I don't believe there are those who come back unscarred. I really don't. You know, I, 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 um, I wrote about it and uh, it seems that almost everybody that deploys either turns to their faith or turns to their addictions mm -hmm. um, when they get back and yep. even, even turn to faith in unhealthy ways. Right. Um, but uh, for, for my situation, um, like I said, I can't talk too much about my Iraqi deployment. Um, but um, I, I didn't, I didn't have those same issues when I got back. And um, really, it was just a personalization doing combat rescue. I really just 
very much took everything personally and to heart with my patients, uh, with our patients, with um, situations. And uh, I, I just got so fucking angry all yep. the time. Yep. You know, I get it. Um, I get it. I mean, how could you not personalize that, Robert? I mean, how yeah. you have people like broken, bloody, likely going to die and you're like their last hope. I, 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 how could you not take that personally? Well, uh, I had zero education on it. And okay. uh, so, you know, that's something that I enjoy doing now is, is sharing um, my background and my history with it just to provide education for others to, to know what to expect. but. Essentially, what happened was I, I did uh, just over five months um, in uh, in Afghanistan in the summer of 2010, and our job there was almost entirely um, just picking up uh, casualty evacuations. Just a typical um, medevac helicopter is slightly different than ours because of the weaponry, so they're called medevac, and we were casualty evacuation at Casavac. Okay, and so we would accept higher risks. Um, and uh, a lot, a lot of times we'd be able to provide, or all the time we could provide a higher level of care with with our um, pararescue men in the back, um, being trained to a, uh, um, a paramedic level in the U.S. Um, a little bit higher than your your typical, um, you know, Navy corpsman or you know any um, any other um, uh, Army um, medical personnel, with the exception of doctors and nurses. Um, yep. So, but. Like I like I said earlier, I um we did I believe 221 missions in a, in a five month period. Um, That's unreal. Picked up 291, um, and I wasn't I wasn't really ready for the type of of patients that we had. Um, so it wasn't just Allied troops; it was enemy. It was um. You know, any any ally of ours, it was children, it was families. Um, oh, my God. It was uh, <laughs> dogs sometimes. Um, and uh, it, the little things stick with you. It's it's not it's not being shot at. It's not shooting back. And, and there were times not not every time, but they would tend to be grouped into into clusters where we would um, have to fight our way in or fight our way out or uh, figure out a way to do both. And, um, we would, uh, pretty much accept higher levels of risks and didn't really have any time to talk about it. Um, didn't want to talk about it. Didn't know the value of talking about it. And, uh, I sort of internalized everything and and suppressed it. Right. And I carried those patients around with me when I got home. And, um, like I said, I, I, I just got so angry all the time. I couldn't sleep. I, I didn't want to eat. I, I just, I, I projected all my issues and, um, I turned myself slowly into an addict, mm. um, you know, with one, one thing after another, uh, did you do hardcore drugs or just alcohol and over the counter? And I, I, once I started getting, um, injured, the thing about post-traumatic stress and any anxiety disorder is you sort of need to be doing something all the time (laughs) and you need to be able to feel you need to be able to find ways to make yourself feel whether that's adrenaline sex you know chemical substances anything and um you know even like i said even even um church could be or any religion could be harmful 
Um, but I ended up getting a motorcycle accident, um, suffered some brain damage there, uh, had some pretty bad road rash, um, close skull fractures. Um, I had to do a bunch of surgeries after that. And that's when I got introduced into opiates and, um, boy, were those nice, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. those, those made everything go away. And, yep. um, I got into those pretty heavy, uh, in the same manner, you know, instructions say, take, you know, two every so many hours and yep. two turns into four yep. and, oh, you got to shave an hour off. Cause now you're not feeling that as much. And so before I knew it, um, I was doing at least double the dose and being handled a bottle of 50 to hundred pills, whatever I felt like. And I don't even know if anybody was keeping track. Wow. Um, and it slowly added on more and more, um, developed life cycles of went from alcohol, adrenaline, porn and sex lifestyle with some pills mixed into now I can't go out. So now just give me everything. Right. you know, whatever I can take. Right. So wasn't really doing much alcohol at that time. So again, I'm lying to myself about not being alcoholic. I'm taking prescription drugs for an actual issue and lying to myself that now I'm a, becoming a druggie. Now I'm becoming addicted to this substance on top of it. And were um, you still in the military? I was absolutely. Oh, okay. Absolutely. I was, this was, uh, this was in, um, I got into an accident in summer of 2011, August. Okay. In fall of 2011, I was a full-on addict um, and had no idea about it. Um, Slowly worked my way out of that as far as getting back to alcohol to get off of opiates. Um, So I was able to lie to myself about that too and continued one cycle after another. Um, You know, divorced uh, divorced my first wife. Um, I, I was really into unhealthy relationships, really into... Um, finding adrenaline, finding anybody to blame for my issues because it couldn't be me because right. I didn't have issues. I didn't have any problems whatsoever. I was doing what I needed to do. And what do you do when you need to blow off steam? You drink. But, and, you know, in my private life, if I wasn't keeping myself constantly busy, I mean, four weeks after my accident, I still couldn't see straight. Um, mm. I was seeing double images for almost six months Wow! um, because my, my eye socket was a little jacked up and I had to have some surgeries to fix that. Um, And I was, if, if I wasn't busy doing any impulsive, any addictive behavior or substance, actually I would have to be multiple. um, I would be at home drinking, looking up my patients online and I would, any night I was, I was by myself, I would write my patients over and over just to find out, just to find out who was still alive or not. And then um, after a while that I would turn to violence as far as knocking down walls, knocking down doors, whenever I got into that same mindset, um, whenever I faced those feelings that I refused to face, um, I would project it around me. And, um, I really just tore my life apart one day at a time. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I went down and down that. My only goal was to keep my job um, and just to get my mind off of my life. 
uh, I, I slowly hated myself more and more. Um, you know, I, I was, uh, really compounding the problems with, um, what you're probably familiar with secondary trauma, mm. uh, at, at this point, um, going into, uh, 2012, um, you know, I, I try to straighten my life out in certain ways. Um, you know, I quit the, the excessive, uh, porn and sex as much as I could, um, married my second wife, um, was able to go to Africa, um, you know, and, and take that staff deployment. Um, so I was doing everything I could to keep my job, but I had no idea what was going on inside of me. There wasn't, there was becoming an emphasis on mental health, but it really wasn't reaching me in any way. Um, the military was attempting to take care of the problem. Uh, and it just honestly takes them years, unfortunately, but they were, they were putting resources and time and effort, but where I was at, I had no idea, right. no idea about anything, no idea about really what it was to be an addict or an alcoholic. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll start with, with, for me, where it starts, because this, this might be the easiest way to explain it. Um, whether it, whether I would have an intrusive thought, what, what a lot of people call triggers um, from certain events, uh, PTSD is sort of unique um, in that it is externally triggered mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways. Um, not all the time, but, but it very much uh, that's a hallmark of it. Um, but on the flip side, you also have nightmares, you know? Um, so essentially that's, for me, that's what a trigger was. It was almost like a daymare, you know, right, uh, right. not a daydream, but a day nightmare. No, I get it. And, and so whether, I, whether I'd be sleeping or something would just hit me like that, um, you know, riding around on a motorcycle, getting into a fight with a car, you know, right. things like that. Um, the nightmares for me were pretty constant. And that was one of the things I enjoyed about alcohol was when I blacked out, I didn't dream. Hmm. And so that became a goal of mine was to not drink because the nightmares were so painful. Um, you are listening to the addiction podcast point of no return for more information on the podcast or to reach out. If you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at the addiction podcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, the addiction podcast.com or Call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. 
And it didn't matter if it was just a little glimpse, a little flash, you know, where you'd wake up and you just have that vision or that feeling. Uh, there'd be times, um, you know, one time we we're circling over Cop Nolan and uh, um, it's a combat outpost on the northeast, um, very northeast uh, outskirts of, of Kandahar, if it could be called that, um, of the Argandab River Valley. And remember, um, you know, circling, I would get this, this is a pretty common nightmare for me was, you know, just a vision of being in that position, circling. And we had an aircraft in the zone, picking up a patient and talking to their gunner and their, their co-pilot. What had happened was they had their patient coming in and he was blocking and, and the soldiers bringing the, um, bringing them to the helicopter were blocking their 50 caliber from firing. And it was, maybe 50 meters outside their doors, way too close for us to engage um, with, with the damage that we could cause um, to the ground troops, to our, to our um, uh, wingmen on the ground. And so in that situation, we're set up in the gun pattern orbiting probably, uh, you know, 100, 100 to 115 knots. So roughly 120, 130 miles an hour-ish at 50 to 100 feet in a gun pattern just trying to make any noise because we couldn't engage the, the troops coming at um, that, that were pretty close to our wingman that was in the uh, landing zone. So we just started shooting up an empty field behind them, you know, and getting engaged there. Um, and so, you know, that's when you wake up, it's yeah. just that flash of like, yep. fuck, like, yep. yeah, you know, wow. just like, just, I don't care. Just do something, shoot grass. I don't give a shit. Just, yep. You know, I don't care if you have to go pew, pew, like just fucking make it happen, you know, like, and it was that terror. Um, but my most common one, um, it's, it's a little bizarre. And it's, I think it's the first time I've talked to a lot of docs and counselors about it. It's the first time I really connected with, with one of my patients in a, in a very weird way. But um, we were climbing out actually two weeks earlier than the last mission I was talking about. And uh had this, we had our, our uh, the one patient uh, in our wingman, I pushed him out front so they could get back a little faster. The patient was crashing. It was a category alpha patient, which meant our requirements um, were to get this patient to the hospital within one hour of being notified. So we're doing everything we can. We just picked them up from the zone. We were, uh, our, our wingman was shot at coming out of the landing zone. Um, but for us, it doesn't matter. Just get the hell out of there. Our goal is the patient, not, not the enemy. Um, so we left the, uh, the ground team in the zone dealing with, with their, um, engagement and, uh, trying to get back crossing the river about 2000 feet climbed up. So we wouldn't, um, so we wouldn't be shot at anymore. And all of a sudden our flight engineer on the right side, he's manned the, the gun on the right side door, essentially, um, you know, just screams out just holy shit we got a huge explosion right side for three miles so we look over and there's this huge plume of smoke coming up about a thousand fifteen hundred feet this moment and then i'll never forget this uh the ground commander comes out and you don't normally on an encrypted radio i've never heard anybody scream never heard anybody cuss but he just shrieks and sounded like an animal about to be killed if you've ever heard that noise and he screams get that fucking medevac back here now and just that wow that that was one of the worst um 
looking back, it just, yeah, I don't know why, um, but it was just so surreal. You just didn't hear that. Yep. And um, so I immediately banked us over right, hard right. You know, Pedro's hook right, 27055 had the lead in the descent. Bottom out my power, um, called a collective uh, in the helicopter. And we just start immediately falling, maintaining 120 knots. Our wingman comes back and says, negative request RTB. Um, you know, and my buddy Chris is like, these scogs, this guy's dying on us. Got to go. Okay, clear to strip. So we, um, so we press in single ship. Um, at this point, going in single ships, like sh- we got to figure out a different way. So immediately, just um, bank the aircraft over and start a little uh, more of a circling descent and try and provide any misdirection as far as which which way we're coming in. It was so hot, we didn't have a choice. You only there's only one way in, one way out, and yep. so now this is the third third time going back into this landing zone and uh every every radio is blowing up we got you know my gunners in the back talking to our operations desk we got um the other pilot uh d sitting next to me on the right and she's talking to the ground team just going out at it. the um pj team in the back is getting their stuff ready again to get back into the zone and everything's just going off and so i'm talking you know, just finishing up my conversation with our wingman while, while the other pilots coordinating and, and, um, you know, she's sitting there just calling out to believe it was a long knife was, that was a call sign of the, uh, of the gunships overhead that were, that were backing us out or backing us up, excuse me. Um, and so, you know, she's sitting there calling up, um, long knife pager split and single ship pager five fives inbound two minutes out from the landing zone request you maintain 500 feet and above. Uh, we'll be 500 feet and below approaching from the north. Um, break breaks, calls the ground commander. You know, Pedro 55, two minutes out, request patient missed. Um, stands for Mechanism Injury Signs and Treatment, MIST. Um, and essentially, it's what's going on, what happened, you know, who's messed up, how they're messed up, get the information to, the, to our um, uh, PJs in the back. Um, and this is happening meanwhile, while we're in basically a free fall as, as close to you can get as in a helicopter oh as possible, God. slowly circling, passing oh. through, you know, we're sitting there at that point, passing to 1200 feet, thousand feet, 800 feet, you know, and all you hear back is, uh, triple amputee tourniquets. That's it. 200 feet pulling power in. And at that point you're throwing the nose of the helicopter forward. You get this big windscreen full of sand and dirt as you keep falling and putting more power into Aircraft is just shaking uncontrollably. About uh, coming through, you know, 100 feet, start leveling out, looking to looking to level out 50 feet, coming around Fob Terra Nova, the Ford operating base in the area that that provides their main support. Hook a sharp left around there, and at this point, uh, the other pilots calling out to the ground team again. Pedro's one minute out, pop smoke, pop smoke, pop smoke. And at that point, there's this kid. Uh, that I see right above our glare shield, sort of the dashboard, you know, this kid's walking and he's got this big, you know, bag of, of sticks that, you know, he's just dragging through his field, drops a little stick, pulls one out and does this. Oh no. And all I see is him flash below the, the glare shield. And I see it briefly in the chin bubble. 
all you do at that point is you change your plane and phase of flight. So oh. slight, slight right turn, slight dip down. And then it's just sort of, you do the turtle thing where you're just like, oh. yep. you know, waiting for something to happen. It's like, oh God, nothing happens. And that's all I, that's the only closure I got on that. Wow. And at that point I sort of realized what's going on. And the other pilots, cause she's talking still to the ground team and the ground commander. I didn't really pay attention to what he had said during that. And he tried to sneak something in on us. So I think so we would still land uh, because it's, it's kind of bullshit. But, um, so he, he, he calls, he calls back and he's like, uh, Roger B advised we're one field West. And this is what clued me in. D goes, uh, confirm LZ has been bombered, which means have you swept it for more IADs? You know, yeah. uh, cause we're about to, we're about to land, you know, almost 20,000 pounds there. We're going to set off every pressure plate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and all you hear back is negative. Oh no. <laughs> like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so I remember, I remember looking at this and this is why I wrote this in my, in my book, uh, perspective of hope, like a dream. It's, um, I, she didn't confirm this, but I, I remember it clear as day. I remember looking over her, didn't say anything. And I just remember her shaking her head, just going, just get this over with. <laughs> so it was like, fuck it. Just bottom on the collective, slow back. Pages on the approach. And then it's, we have what these things call triangle calls as a crew. So you have each member of the crew calling out in a triangle shape. Um, what's going on. So you're hundred feet, hundred knots, four down left, 80 feet, 80 knots, four down left, 60 feet, 60 knots, four down left. Take that down 40, 40 over 40, 30 over 30, door's got the calls. At that point, the door has the calls. The door gunner takes over at this point. And he starts calling out 30 over 30, clear four down left, 20 over 20, 10 over 10. And what somewhere in there, I, I, I remember thinking to myself, right about 20 feet is where we're going to start setting off these pressure plates if we hit anything. So again, I'm back doing the turtle, you know, I'm into my little thing, just like, oh God, damn it. And 15 feet, 10 feet, you know, had uh, had the aircraft kicked out of trim a little bit to slow down a little bit more, throw it back into alignment, pull power in, boom, slam the helicopter down. And our goal is not to come in and just land like right, an elevator. Right. It doesn't work in combat. It's too easy to shoot you and we don't yep. have power. Yeah. So you come in as low and fast as possible and land to a point. Um, so essentially it's, it's almost... Uh, it, it's almost like a speedboat approaching a dock. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. You, you want to hit that dock right at the moment that you can. Yeah, um, yeah. But for us, it's three-dimensional with Grand Theft Auto going on all around you. Yeah. <laughs> so slam the helicopter down, dump the collective out, powers out, cleared out, left, teams at 10 o'clock, patients at 10 o'clock. And I remember there's all the soldiers were strung out on this little trail because they're afraid to go into the field left and yeah. right. We just landed in. There's a little hill, a little berm, a little bit past them about the 11 o'clock and um, enemy combatants were on the other side of that. And that's where we knew they'd be shooting at us. The second we took off There's a row wow. of trees um, at our left. And at that point I sort of checked out. And I remember the patient being brought in, we didn't have doors because it's just so damn hot. It's, right. You know, 100, right. 115 to 120 daily. Um, everything's just so hot. All your stuff is just baking in the sun when you're sitting when you're sitting on alert, waiting to fly. But 
team's out and start bringing the first patient in. And I remember seeing this guy and I don't know why the hell they're walking so slow. Maybe it's just my memory, but normally it was, it was, it was like something out of a fucking movie script, you know, like, yeah, I didn't understand why there was no blood. I didn't understand why the leg looked like a freaking tree stump that had just been snapped off. <sighs> One of his buddies came running up and put his boot, dropped that on the stretcher with him right as he's walking past my door. And there's a second patient right behind it. They're bringing in now. And I should be getting ready to take off. I should be running power. I should be getting the team ready. There's, you know, like I was talking about, there's, things I should be calling out trees that we need to climb over with no power. Now we got an extra patient. We need to run weights. And I'm just staring at this guy and locked eyes um, with the patient, right. As his buddy's putting the boot on there, you could still see the, the ankle coming out of the boot. Yeah. That's when okay. I wake up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, excuse me. I try to get it's, through that. It's okay. Um, I don't, I don't know how you can get through stuff like that. I don't know how you could not have nightmares. I may have nightmares after you telling me about it. I'm not trying to make light of it, but I mean, I apologize. Jeez, Robert. Um, I mean, no, don't apologize for crying out loud. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's, um, so that's, uh, for a lot of veterans. And I, I, I use that as an example. Um, that's how you wake up. Oh that's my God. how your day just, starts. That's, just... that's how Tuesday starts or Wednesday starts. And I'm a big, I'm a big fan of counseling. I'm a big fan of therapy. I'm a big fan of just about anything, mental health and, and psychology, because it, it's, it's correct and it works. And I'm a, I'm a big subscriber um, to relational frame theory, which is what cognitive behavior therapy is based on. Okay. Uh, and Quickly, you know, in layman's terms, re relational frame theory tells us that, you know, talks about the relationship between thoughts and feelings and mm -hmm. thoughts come from feelings, feelings come from thoughts, and essentially they reinforce each other. And your next thought, which you don't know yet until you have it, is based upon the previous one and the emotional state that both are coming from. So to somebody who doesn't know how to regulate their own emotions through an awareness of their thoughts, uh, a lot of times we'll end up pretty much thinking we're the thought, if that makes sense. Yep. So when you wake up and that's your state of mind, is that situation, that that's where you're coming from, is those moments thousands of miles away. That's where you start your day. That's how you're going down everything. And so if you are confusing who you, who I am, if, which I was at the time with my thoughts, I start a life of projection. I start right. a life of being set off by people around me. I set off, I start my day already angry, not wanting to eat, you know, already needing a beer because that's what you do when you need to, when you need to vent, when you need to relax. That's, yep. that's the way I thought, that's the way I lived. And so it's just a constant reinforcement of this unhealthy lifestyle through all of these behavior cycles. Well, how do, you, how do you get thinking. out of that, Robert? I'm sorry to cut you off, but it's like, how do you get out of that? I mean, I don't, 
I mean, how did you get out of it? How did you stop this whole, you know, dwindling I, uh, spiral, if you will? I became suicidal. Okay. Um, That's I, one I way, I guess. Started. I started passively trying to kill myself. Oh, um, I, I started. I started that through first through reckless behavior, and not caring if I lived or died. Right. And then, right. looking back, I wanted to. I wanted right. to fucking die yep. every day. And eventually, that's how I woke up. Eventually, I figured out how to not dream, how to not have those nightmares. But I would still wake up with the feelings. I still wake up angry. I yep. remember waking up and just going, fuck, why am I fucking alive? I fucking hate this, yep. you know, every day. Yep. And then it would just, there was a couple of instances where I would just sit and just think about killing myself and how I'm going to do it and trying to get the courage to go through with it, trying to get strong enough. Because for me, it wasn't, I've heard, I've heard people remark, you know, suicide is a coward's way out. No, it's fucking hard. It is hard to get there. You have to get strong to get there and yeah. tough. Yeah. Um, and in, in the way that I thought tough was, which was, to do something, to, to, to take action, to end these negative things. Right. And eventually on the 29th of September, 2015, one month before I was uh, medically um, retired from the air force, I just had a complete fit of rage. Um, I, I, I went down, I remember going down my stairs, went to, just got so angry more and more every memory I was having. And I, I remembered just going downstairs as fast as I could. And I just started punching the wall and uh, hit a wall stud. You know, it Ow. felt like I broke my hand. So I started <laughs> punching it again because I was so angry. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Next thing I know, I'm rushing into the front room and I'm standing in front of my gun safe open. With my left hand, I grabbed a... Uh, Six hour 1911, it's a 45 caliber pistol. Um, I had just gone shooting about 13 days earlier with uh, with an old friend of mine and uh, just cleaned, just cleaned my weapons, just finished loading it, picked it up. And I remember thinking, fuck it, one more bet. Uh, feeling, you know, whatever. It's just, yep. we're all killing ourselves, I yep. think, is where I was coming from with that. Yep. And, um, pause, look, I remember looking at my, my pistol and, uh, yeah, put it to my head and pulled the trigger. I still don't know why it wasn't loaded. Hmm. Um, and it was, you weren't supposed to die, Robert. Yeah, I, I suppose. Um, <laughs> Uh, who knows? Uh, no, you weren't. Um, I mean, look at what you're doing it, now. It was, and, uh, you know, we was, can segue into rock to recovery when you're ready, but look at absolutely. what you're doing now. So, well, in, in, in that moment for me, I, I had a different kind of flashback than, than what I talked about earlier. Um, and I, I sort of went through um, not like what I've heard other people necessarily describe about it, but it was more like a, almost like a mural that I was, that I was saying, it happened just in a flash. 
And um, it was more like an epiphany style feeling where mm-hmm. I, I was able to sort of see like these different areas, examples of these patterns I was living, examples of, you know, of, of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And um, that was actually, that moment is actually what I ended up writing about and I turned into my book that we published in 2019 um, titled Perspectives of Hope. Yep. And um, that was my first experience not being those thoughts, you know, yep. but sort of being the fly on the wall going, Oh, look what, look what this guy's doing. Meaning me, look what I'm doing. And it was yeah. just in a flash. Wow. So you can pull away from it, at least for the moment just, and know that just those for were that moment. thoughts over here and not you. Yes. Yes, yeah. ma'am. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. so at that point, um, I didn't want to kill myself anymore. It was just, it was very surreal. It was just sort of like, Oh, okay. I'm just, put the gun back and shut this and I'll, uh, I guess I'll go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, went to the hospital and I was seeing, seeing things and people in a different way. And things were just so funny, you know, it was just, it was just, it was, it was just amusing. You know, I, I don't know how to say it, but, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. It, it was, um, I, I didn't know how to change my life at that yep. point, but that, that was what made me just go, I got to change. Um, my, uh, you had the need and you could then figure out the how exactly, exactly. So my, my ex, um, was married at the time, uh, again, and, um, she's not my ex, uh, we're really good friends. Um, and she was very, very supportive and said, okay, let's, you're right. Let's get the hell out of, out of, out of here. And at this time I was living in Las Vegas. And, um, within, within, uh, eight weeks, we had moved out to Colorado. Um, and I wasn't, I was still had a lot of issues from brain damage, from post-traumatic stress, uh, moved into a, moved into a little Canyon, um, <laughs> ma- near Manitou Springs outside of Colorado Springs. And I didn't want to go out. I, I started isolating. I didn't do anything with anyone. Wouldn't talk to anybody, quit answering the phone, quit doing everything in my life. And, um, and for a time, my ex had to take over everything in my life, um, you know, finances, food, everything. I, I quit on, on everything. I, I um, Over that past year, I had gone down from, oh, gosh, well over 240 pounds, almost 250 pounds. And I think I was around 160 at this point. Wow. Um, How old were you, Robert? Oh, gosh. <laughs> 35. 35. Yeah. Trying to trying to give me a math test right now. Yeah, hey, sorry. Uh, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to call my kids for help. <laughs> um, but um, after after I sat there doing nothing, I had um I had sports injuries. I had, I still had a lot of stuff going on. I actually had a uh, a staph infection for uh, four months shy of two years. Oh, uh, I read that. I read that in the book. Injuries. Okay. For uh, those of you, for those of you who read the Rock to Recovery book, Robert tells his story, and that was a that was pretty gnarly. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a fun time. Who doesn't love a good uh, MRSA staph infection? Um, but you know that wasn't surprisingly that wasn't my biggest problem. That wasn't even my biggest threat to my life. Uh, I was. And well, were you still drinking? Were you still doing doing no. drugs? No. Okay. All right. So no, you got I, clean I went and sober cold, at least. I went cold turkey on okay. that. Um, and I actually used uh, cannabis to get me off. Okay. Uh, All right. And uh, which full disclosure, I still use it as especially for sleep aid. Um, but um, 
and there were times where, you know, I've, I've struggled with it in, in the past, um, because it's, it can be very helpful, but it's also very addictive in, in strange ways. Um, so it's something that I, that I had to learn how to not go down an addictive behavior with. Yeah. Um, but I, I was introduced to rock to recovery through the air force wounded warrior program, uh, the DOD, the DOD, not the nonprofit, um, not, not wounded warrior project. Who's amazing, amazing nonprofit, amazing organization. And I talk about the help I've gotten from them in my book. Um, love, love supporting them. I'll throw the name out anywhere, but the, the air force wounded warrior program, um, is actually a, a DOD um, office in, in part of the air force, each branch has their own equivalent. And, um, I was introduced to them through a friend who called me up and said, Hey, I want to, want to fly you out for this, for this week. I want to bring you in and it's a care event. And we're, we have all these programs lined up, you know, have this and that. And I cut them off and I just said, dude, if it wasn't you, I'd, I'd hang up on your ass. I don't want to hear a thing about the Air Force. Fuck the military. Fuck the country. Fuck everyone. I don't want anything to do with it. I hate everyone. You don't get it. My wife at the time was on the other line talking to someone else going, I hate him. I'm leaving him. I'm divorcing him now. And this is 2016. So we're not making it, by the way. Yeah. Uh, well, both of us were talked into coming. And um, thank God. Uh, that was how I got onto my path. And that was how I started figuring out how to change my life. And it wasn't just rock recovery. It was painting. It was group sessions. It was sports. It was adaptive sports for ways that I couldn't, couldn't perform like I used to with, with all the various in, injuries and such. And most of all, it was a community. It was a community of people like me. And I, I love your podcast because it, it's just a continuation. I, I relate so much with, with so many people, especially addicts, especially uh, sexual trauma, um, people with a history of, of that trauma. Um, it's very similar symptoms, very similar lifestyles that develop out of, out of all of those. Um, and I was just blessed to be with so many unbelievable people. When I, when I was brought into inpatient or done multiple outpatient programs now, Every time I'm shocked with how much I absolutely just love these people mm -hmm. because there's not that layer of bullshit, you know, there's not that layer of fake. There is and understanding. When you walk in, it's just there's understanding. Home, you know? Yeah, they've been through it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 There's no need. There's no need to be to be a one upper. You know, That's there's right. no need to have the worst. You don't want to have the worst story in that room. Trust me. <laughs> it's not a good thing. You don't want to have the top story. So, but it's just every, every state, every clinic, every group I've been in has just been full of the best people and, you know, going, going to uh, rock to recovery and, and Wes, I mean, how can you not just open up when you've got, you know, guitarist that was playing with corn, you know, yep. or I mean, Sonny Mayo with all the bands he's been with. I mean, it's just, it's insane. Brandon Parkhurst, a uh, different Brandon yep. than, than you guys. Yep. Uh, hopefully you'll get to meet him. Um, mm. I mean, he offered and, and became my counselor online. Oh, wow. um, ran through some different, I did, I did every counseling session I could. I did every type I could. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, somatic uh, behavioral therapy, uh, cognitive therapy. Um, and what, what I found was this relation, once you have that surrender to treatment, surrender to just to what you need to do to get going better, it becomes not scary, but just, okay, how do I do it? Yep. You know, how can I get yep. more of this? Because you, you start experiencing those good times and you want more. And it's, it's just the little things that are thrown out. You know, I was talking to Wes once going, man, what do you, what do, you do for this situation? He's like, dude, just hang on, hang on. Just whenever you're feeling this stuff, just do the opposite. You know, really, what do, what do you mean, Wes? Like, contrary action. Just if you're fucking up your life, do the opposite and you'll make your life great. Like, oh, okay. So started trying some contrary action on, see how that feels. Um, you know, when I, when I uh, would get really down on myself and, and, and do some negative self-talking, it's, you know, all these little tips and tools and tricks I'm learning, you know, just from, from these rock stars going, well, what I do is I talk to myself and I say, Hey, don't, don't talk to my friend that way. It's <laughs> like, all right, to hell with it. I'll go crazy and I'll start talking to myself. You guys are right. I'll give it a shot. And it works. You yeah. know, it absolutely works yeah. to stand up for yourself against yourself. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause usually you're your worst you. critic. And so if you can say, Hey, yes. you know, I'm not such a bad guy because look at what I did yesterday and look at what I'm going to do today. Yeah. You know? Yes. Um, and it's not just that it's, it's just the little things also. It's the, how do you get out of craving alcohol? Well, mm-hmm. you know, um, for, I've talked to one of my buddies was like, you know, I found that smoking cigarettes a lot healthier than that. You know, okay, great. Good point. You know, and, and so you have those, it's not that you want to become addicted to cigarettes, but it sure is a lot healthy and it's a lot easier to get out of that mindset with the extreme substances with that extreme behavior with having your life, you know, having relationships focused around, you know, sex or, or, um, really anything unhealthy in in that manner, looking, objectifying your partner, I guess is what I'm, is is what I'm getting at. Um, and, and rather just enjoying the moment, switching from a goal oriented mindset to a value oriented, you know, there you go. And looking for the little things that you enjoy in life. And what I found was. I was going to ask you what your life is like now. So you're kind of headed there. What's your life like yeah. now, Robert? Uh, oh, gosh. I'm I'm a, just a taxi driver for my kids. So. <laughs> uh, but, I can relate but when, to that. I'm a taxi driver for my grandchildren. There you go. Uh, well, I need to hire you. I, I don't, they, don't, they don't have too many grandparents out in Denver. But um, no, it's. Uh, Oh boy. Um, so I, I've actually gotten into music pretty heavily. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely not a professional. I volunteer at a, um, at a veteran nonprofit, Mount Carmel Veteran Service Center in the spring in Colorado Springs, excuse me. Um, and so every Monday night for anybody who wants to join us five o'clock down at Mount Carmel, we have a, uh, a music group and it's just an open jam session. Um, and, uh, unashamedly, I, I, stole everything I could from rock recovery. I couldn't get enough of their, of their medicine. Um, so I had to start making some myself. And so, uh, it's, I've got some regulars that come in that sort of help me out with, with things, um, as far as just keeping, keeping the momentum going. Um, I have the ones that whoever shows up, those are the, the veterans that show up are the ones who pick our music and where we're going with it. Um, I actually had, um, uh, 
Hornbuckle Foundation, a nonprofit in Denver. Um, lady that runs it uh, with her husband, she came down with the with the veteran she was working with and uh, just watched. And she happened to actually be a musician herself. And um, so she jumped in and played with us and she said, oh, my God. All right. I want this in our nonprofit. So now yep. I'm working with her to set up theirs. And it's just a matter of just um, finding out what people know and fitting that into something that makes musical sense. Yeah, you know, it it's brilliant. I'm sorry I cut you off a little bit, but no, Rocker okay. Recovery's whole whole setup and purpose it, to use music is absolutely brilliant. And you know, veterans whether they're on drugs or not they're in recovery just like an addict i mean based on everything you told us you have to recover from that shit excuse my bad word i mean you just do and so music i mean what a great way to work on that you know and and to and to get into that you know or or painting as you said or we've had addicts who write poetry you know it's you have to find what's going to help you in recovery. And I just think what Wes and um, Constance and you and Brandon and these other guys are doing is just unbelievable in terms of helping people. And if it can get replicated in every single city, boy, I hope so. It's needed. Absolutely. You, you, are, you are right. And it's not just that. It's um, And back to the Air Force Wounded Warrior uh, group I was talking about. Uh, and I, I can't advertise them enough because being part of the DOD, they have zero marketing budgets. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, they're, the ones, they're the ones who introduced me to, to Wes and Constance and, and their whole crew. You mean I um, shouldn't hit them up for a sponsorship for the podcast? Okay, fine. That's uh, fine. No, but you could, you, could, <laughs> you could join them at um, – so they're the ones who, who do the Warrior Games and okay. the International Invictus Games with a lot of our allies that, that Prince Harry uh, uh, puts on or used to put on. Um, if he doesn't, I don't know. But um, – but you're absolutely right. And I resonate with a lot of what you talked with Constance about, which is, you know, it does release those positive um, chemicals, you know, positive hormones, the serotonin that gets dumped into your brain. And all of a sudden you're, you're able to experience almost a runner's high through yep. music, yep. through painting, through arts and crafts, through, I mean, even yoga becomes this really enjoyable, almost nutritive part of my life (laughs) and um wherever i could wherever i could get that creative high whether i wherever i could get that you know um really any enjoyment out of creative arts in general uh, just sent me over the moon and and i've slowly been shaping my life around that um it was a way for me to get back in touch with my kids and to become interested in what they were interested in um you know, I mean, I, I even painted the, I got my cover, my book um, that I painted uh, behind me on the wall. Um, and it, it just became this um, huge part of my identity, not, not just a part of the healing process, but it gave me something to go for. Yeah. Um, I think you're making a difference in a lot of people's lives. And I will tell you, because I feel this with a podcast, we don't always hear from people who listen, but I know 
that the more we put up stories such as yours and other people's stories, I know that there are people who listen and it resonates with them. And maybe we'll have a veteran who listens and gets in touch with Wounded Warriors or Rock to Recovery. Or maybe we'll have a wife of a veteran who's struggling with PTSD and gets in touch with one of these organizations. You know, you, you, the ripple effect of what you do when you help just one person is it's awe-inspiring and i not only thank you for your service in the military but thank you for what you're doing now for those who've served it's it's amazing robert it's really well, well done thank you so much i i sincerely appreciate it and uh, i gotta be honest i'm just very selfish because it helps <laughs> me heal it, it you know helps like i said it helps me get back in touch with my kids well you have to start uh, with you i mean let's face so, it yeah yeah so. but it's it's just it's it's an intense joy just to, uh, to do. Um, and I can't believe it's still going. I published in August of 2019, had very success, uh, successful start, um, you know, picked up and, uh, first in Denver and, you know, within weeks I'm facing almost 500 people just, you know, yeah. uh, bright eyed, yeah. just going, Oh my God, what did I get myself into? And, you know, the Air Force is like, hey, we like that so much. They sent me out of California. I hit a couple of bases out there. And then I started getting picked up for some for some bigger events. Um, you know, got to um, got to get out to Washington, D.C., got to get out to New York twice. And then all of a sudden COVID hits, and shuts everything down. Oh. But I was so amazed that, uh, you know, there was enough impact and, and people were interested in this enough to where I was able to get, you know, picked up and. I just had people asking me to do Zoom, yep. um, to do Zoom speaking engagements, to do, um, I was asked to create a spiritual teaching class for one Air Force unit, talk about it oh. for an hour. And I'm going, oh my gosh, what do I, <laughs> what the heck do I talk about here? Um, but we just finished updating, uh, we're um, about to publish update, uh, update to the website, perspectivesofhope.com. Perspectivesofhope.com. Um, and that's the name of your yes. book, right? Perspectives of Hope. Perspective of Hope. Same, same title. Yes. And so um, that's, that's one of my passions is I really enjoy getting out, sharing my story and giving some education. Like you said, that, that yeah. can help families because when you walk a mile in, in someone's shoes, who's been through it, you can get rid of the, of the mystery. You can yep. decloak the truth. And you'll see the patterns, you'll see the similarities. Yep. And so for family members, for loved ones, um, for friends of, of people showing signs of anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress in general, it's, and, it's very important to have that outside perspective that, that allows you to see it. And, exactly. um, you know, it, it, um, it really just becomes one, one effort after another and changing the way you see the world yep. and changing, changing your perspective and changing some of the judgments that we have, you know, to yep. where you can not have that same relationship, not be tied to those same judgments, not be tied to what tough means. Yep. Um, being able to change um, certain things, you know, one of the, one of the conclusions, one of the main points to my, to my book um, it, it's, it's about understanding that, that I define what tough means for me. It's about saying that tough doesn't mean strong. It doesn't mean unaccepting. It doesn't mean rigid and not able to change. What it means to me now is how quickly can I get back to an open heart? How quickly can I reach a place of compassion? 
how quickly can I open up to life again and just walk out my door and be a good dad to be a good friend, you know, be a good person in general. So great. That was, that was essentially my, my lesson, my life lesson from all this junk. (laughs) Great message. Robert, thank you so much for talking to us today. I mean, that's a great message for everybody. And I just, I, I just know that your story is going to resonate with someone who maybe thinks that nobody really understands how horrible some of the things they've experienced has been, you know, and you understand that. And anyway, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. I sure do appreciate your time. And like I said, this has been an honor and um, I, I, I do hope this story helps others out there. So it will. Thank you for listening today. Um, Robert's story is, it's horrific in terms of what he experienced when he was in combat. And he's so not alone. There are so many veterans who come back and, you know, they are negatively affected by what they see. I mean, how could they not be? Um, But here's someone who's turned his life around. He's not doing drugs and alcohol anymore. Okay, he's doing some medical marijuana, but whatever but he has turned his life around and he is helping other people, which is even more important. And he's found alternative ways to, you know, make his life and make his world a better place. And I I appreciate him for that. We'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.